Covenanting Sunday is where we've been laying the foundation of what is the heartbeat of this church? What are the, the foundations that we want to stand on as a church? Why do we exist? And who will we be along the journey? So you can think about it in terms of the vision is the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? And we want to root that why fundamentally into one main question. What does God want? Right? And so that's where we get our vision statement. The glory of God, the equipping of his people, the reaching of every man, woman, and child. Because we see that in what he's revealed in his word. Then we want to look at the what. So the mission is the what are we going to do in light of that vision. And that's where we, where we think through. We want to reach people with the gospel. And we want to form people in the gospel. And in order to also be a part of that broader work, we're going to be unpacking this more and more. But, you know, our strategies and the things that we're going to do are going to flow out of that what. But ultimately, it is all around reaching people and forming people in the gospel of Christ. And we know that we're not going to be the only church, the only congregation that God is using. There are other churches that are on that same mission because at the end of the day, we believe there is only one church in the world. There's only one church here in Mount Air, and that is every church that stands on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as its cornerstone. And so we want to partner with churches. We want to plant new churches. We want to see the gospel be accessible to every man, woman, and child through every man, woman, and child in the church. And so that begins to define our what. And now we're looking at who are we going to be along that journey. And this is where our core values come in. Our core values are kind of the, the, the heart, the who. What, what are the things we want to value along the way? What's going to be the lens through which we make our decisions as a church? How are we going to, you know, how are we going to figure out how we're going to spend money, how we're going to release people, how, where we want to meet, how we want to, uh, you know, the, the resources that we want to do, all these types of things form our core values. And so for the last several weeks, we've been walking through our four main core values of God, truth, love, and mission. So you think of those four values, that we want to value God above all things, that he is the treasure that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, that, that it's, the, it's the, the treasure that is worth selling everything to get that he is our highest good, he is our highest value, he is our most valuable treasure, he is the thing that we want to live for and die for and, 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 and do everything with him as our ultimate aim. Number two, that we believe he's revealed truth to us, that he's given us truth to stand on and to build on and to apply in life that we don't have to go through life like walking into a dark room trying to find the light switch and just like sweeping up and down the walls going where's that light switch you know that we don't have to walk through life knowing because God's revealed to us his will he's revealed to us how life was meant to work and most importantly he's revealed who he is and so valuing the truth of God's word is a part of who we are. We want to make decisions in keeping with the word of God. 
We want to see people in keeping with the word of God. We want to worship in keeping with the word of God. And we want to be a part of proclaiming the word of God to the world. Because when we're done uh, with kind of this section, I'll tell you where we're going. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount for most of the, really the whole summer, picking up after Easter. And what we're going to see is that when God's people stand on the word of God, that what it actually does is it turns the world upside down in the way we live, in the way we engage relationships, in how we worship God. And so that's what we mean when we stand on truth. And today we're going to look at love. We're going to look at why love is a core value of ours. And, and I'm going to be honest. I think that really good core values should be aspirational and actualized. Okay? So here's what I mean by that. We actually want to live according to these values. That we can all look back and when we covenant together, that we can go, no, we're actually living into these values to the best of our ability, empowered by the Spirit of God. And yet at the same time, they are aspirational in that we're never going to fully arrive. It's always that, though those things that we can always grow more mature into, that we can always value God more. We can always walk more according to his word. We can always love more. We can always be on a fuller mission. And I'm going to just be real honest with you. Here's one of my prayers as we're walking through these four core values and here's my appeal. Make these your core values too. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have others. But, but I think what I would submit as we look at God, truth, love, and mission, you can insert other words, but I don't know what other four words best encapsulates the new gospel life that God plants in his people. And so I hope that, that when you are a part of Missio, and you covenant with us, that you're not just a fan that, that, man, I'm glad I'm a part of an organization that values those things. Here's a little bit of money, and I'll clap when you do stuff. Like, I'm, like I watch the Hawkeyes or Notre Dame. Like, I'm so glad I'm a part of, I'm so glad I get to watch them do that. But our prayer is, is that you realize that we fundamentally believe whatever God's going to do in the world, he's primarily going to do it through all of his people that stand on these very same values. That in a world that says value your own happiness as your highest good, we stand and say, no, we value God as our highest good. In a world that says truth lies within you and it's totally subjective, we go, no, we actually believe because of the scriptures that truth is not subjective, that it's transcendent, but can be subjectively applied. It looks different in my life than yours, but the truth is the same. That there's a love that is not defined by the world, but defined by God himself. And that there's a mission in the world that is defined by God himself, that our mission is not to make money, it's not just primarily to be happy, it's not primarily just to make other people feel good, and it is not societal transformation. We want to make a difference in our society. I hope that you're happy and joyful in what we do, but there's a bigger mission that we're about, and we pray that these become your values as well. And so today, we want to look at love. Why is love 
one of our core values. Now, we can't do a deep dive into love, the love of God, and how it's applied. So we're going to, again, do a flyover that I hope begin to frame for us what it means to have love be one of our core values. Our society and my own heart perverts love. Watch any romance, like I'll be honest, ladies, don't be mad at me for some of you. I hate The Bachelorette. I can't stand it because it is the hyperbolic demonstration of love's perversion. That it's all about a feeling, it's all about affection, it's all about the rose and it's the drama. But that type of extreme example bleeds itself into every aspect of our life and culture. I'm not judging you if you watch The Bachelor, by the way. It's totally fun to watch the train wrecks that occur on a weekly basis. But nonetheless, but, but if human happiness is ultimately the drive of our society in our modern Western world, then that means love has been turned into a commodity that should make me happy. Love is an emotion that should make me feel good. And the minute something that I used to love doesn't make me feel good anymore, I get rid of that thing and, and replace it with something else. And we use love for everything. I'm guilty. I can tell you I love my iPhone. And I love my guitar. And I love to go for walks. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my children. That's a weird dichotomy. That's a weird group of things to put together, isn't it? That I can say I love my iPhone in the same breath I love my wife. For some of you, that may be true, and that's a whole other sermon that we're going to talk about later. <laughs> but as we look into the scriptures, I think we see something much, much richer about love. And I'll tell you a moment in my life that I began to see just a glimpse of the power of love in ways that I had never really realized before. And I look back, and other than the day I gave my life to Christ and was baptized, it's the greatest moment of my life, hands down. And it's the day my wife walked down the aisle to me. I wept like a baby. <laughs> and to see her come down the aisle, and the way they did it was like so boss. Like there were these doors in the back that were open for the bridesmaids and everything to come down. And then they like closed the doors and then her song started and these doors like mystically swung open and birds came, not really, uh, <laughs> like the doors mystically swing open and here is my bride standing there walking to give her life to me. And it was so, like, there was filled with emotion. But at the end of the day, there was something so much deeper than just the emotion of that moment that here is a woman who is coming and saying, I'm giving myself to you in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in good and in bad, in joy and in sorrow. I'm laying down my life and putting it in your hands. That was a profound moment that I will never forget. And then to see how that love between us then created life 
and to hold your child. I mean, you're right? I'm not preaching to a choir here in a lot of ways. And for you teenagers, I better be preaching to a choir. I better not be preaching to a choir. <laughs> but right when you hold something that was created from the love between you, and you look like all of a sudden love is so much bigger than do I get a rose tonight? And it's so much bigger than I love my iPhone. And as we look into the scriptures, we see a bigger, more compelling picture of what love really is. And to, uh, to, 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 to kind of get us in, I want to just read for us just a few verses that I'm going to look at. But I'm going to look at other things too. And again, we're going to do like a flyover. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 7 to 11. As just our entry point, but we're going to be talking about things you can find throughout the whole scriptures in regards to God's love. So in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, we read these words. This is the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is a powerful section of scripture, and, and John has a lot to say about love as you read the whole text. First John is an interesting book because there are clear lines of thought and clear lines of topics that weave throughout all of First John, but he's, sick, he's circular in how he talks about it. So in one minute he's talking about this and he's going to shift to another topic. And then he's going to come back around and go back to the topic that he was doing before. And then he's going to and this theme of love as a child of God, just is like this beautiful thread into the tapestry of this book. And he makes this profound statement that God is love. Think about that. God is love. Now, one of the things that we can do with this idea of is, and I'll be honest, I think R.C. Sproul had a great teaching on this, and I'm borrowing things from what he shared, because it's a great summary of what he's talking about here. A lot of times we can look at this word is, Jennifer, we talked about this just a, just a few minutes ago, we can look at that word is as an equals sign. God equals love, which means if we're mathematicians, we can flip-flop that. Love is God. But that's actually not what the text is saying. That's not how the Greek was written. That is not how John is writing this. What John is saying is is not an equal sign. But what John is doing throughout his book is he's saying God is so identified with biblical love. 
every action he does, everything that he, everything that he, that he expresses, every, God is so intimately acquainted with love that he actually is love. Like, like God is so loving, he is love. God, and, and we understand that if God is so intimately acquainted with this idea of love as defined by the scriptures, that to see that type of love is to see God, and to know God is to know this kind of love that is not offered in the world. It is offered only by God himself, and his love is also tethered to all his other attributes. This is what's known as, forgive me for all, this is what's known as the doctrine of God's simplicity. See, if we think of God, all that is in God is God. God is not made up of parts. It's not like one part of God is, is omnipresent, and one part of God is loving, and one part of God is just, and one part of God is holy. Or, you know, and, and then you look at him, it's like he's like a mosaic. God's love is one part... And then sometimes he chooses to use his justice, and sometimes he chooses to use his love. Sometimes he chooses to use his kindness. Sometimes he chooses to, be, to, to use his hate. Because believe it or not, the scriptures talk about God hating things too. But because the doctrine of divine simplicity that the scriptures teach is that all of God's attributes are tethered together. So God's love is holy. God's justice is is fueled by love. God's love is eternal. God's love is, is all-powerful. So, so you've got to see all of his attributes connected to one another, which is why we can no longer just say that love is whatever I want it to be. Love is however I define it to be, because that, that is, or, or, or that, that just love is God, because there is perverted love in the world. There is love that is not godly, even if it makes us feel good. Because God's love is holy and it is pure. And God's love is one of a continual giving, which begins in the very nature of God himself. God exists as a triune God, one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And before God made anything, God was the God of love, happy in himself. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit gives, gives glory and honor to the Son. And there, there is a mutual giving between the Father, Son, and Spirit that when Christ comes into the earth we, and he takes on flesh, it's not like the Trinity changes. We just get to see that eternal giving of God existing in human flesh. Does that make sense? Like this beautiful relationship. If you ever want to get a glimpse of what this type of relationship looks like, read John chapter 14 and ask yourself this question. What do I learn about the nature of the Trinity in John 14? And look at how, the, how Jesus talks about the Father. 
how he talks about the spirit and what the spirit and what, and what the spirit's role is. And you see this beautiful giving, continual giving. And so what we see in this text is that, and, and in keeping with the broader scriptures, is that this holy love that God gives is one of continual giving. It's life-giving, and it accomplishes something wonderful. Which is where we go into this. That God's love is displayed in Christ. Look at what he says. In this is, in this the love of God was made manifest, or manifest means revealed. God's love was shown to us. In this, God's love was made manifest among us that he sent his only son so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When God sent the son and the son willingly came, the love of God was shown right in our midst. And this love is redemptive. This love is one that steps into the middle and says, I am going to fight for people who don't even like me. I'm not going to lay my life down and to be redemptive towards people who deserve it. I'm doing it for my own enemies to accomplish something wonderful because God's love in Christ justifies his people, which means God's love is displayed when Christ goes and satisfies God's wrath on the cross. That's what the word propitiation means. The son came to be the propitiation for our sin. It means satisfied the wrath of God for us. That God's love is seen in that God poured out judgment on the very thing that's killing us. Just like a, 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 you know, you know, a, a mother or a father that fights for the protection of her children when, when an enemy is coming at it, this is what God did. Sin is our enemy. And Christ came and satisfied that enemy and defeating it wholeheartedly. But it also not only does that, but it also takes us who are sinners and sets us free from the penalty of, that, of our own sin. And oh, we are guilty in Christ because he died in our place. We become not guilty. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He takes all our filth and gives us his cleanliness. He takes all of our judgment so that we can be free from it. But this love in Christ also adopts us. J.I. Packer, a phenomenal theologian who passed recently, who talked like C-3PO, interestingly enough, but J.I. Packer talked about that this, this idea of being adopted as God's son in Christ is, is very easily the most precious doctrine of the gospel. Because we are justified to be adopted, which means that the love, the think about this, track with me for a second. God the Father has divine holy love for God the Son. And when we are adopted in Christ, we are enfolded into that divine love. 
And the Father loves us with the same love he loves the, he loves the Son. You are not brought in as a stepchild that maybe, maybe dad will like you. You are enfolded into the very love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. And he became flesh so that we could become divinely loved. This love is not dependent upon you. This love is dependent on the love the Father has for the Son and in the work the Son did on your behalf. It is incredible to think that you are enfolded into this, to, to the way Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it, never stopping, never giving up, what was it? Always and forever love. That is, that, 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 that you are the recipient of and a participant in, but you have, you, you can't do anything to lose it. So the love of Christ justifies us the love of Christ adopts us and the love of Christ sanctifies us, removing the stains of sin from our life and causing us to actually begin to live into the very nature for which we were created, holy and righteous. Do you know that sin is what has taken away our humanity? That that is what has marred our image but in Christ, that image through the power of the Spirit as the children of God is being wiped away and our image is being restored as full sons and daughters seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The gospel is wonderful. We see that in Christ that the love of God that's displayed is sacrificial to those who don't deserve it. And it is supremely motivated in displaying the weight and beauty and worth of God himself. God's love is not an emotion. It's a decision. Biblical love is not an emotion. It's a decision. And God has decided to save a people for himself. And that promise to do that is ultimately between the father and the son that they have given with his people. And that decision is forever and final. His love will never end. His love will never not accomplish its purpose in and through you and his people. You never have to wonder if God will change his mind because God is unchanging. His love is forever fixed. This is why God desires marriage to be the picture of Christ and his church that is a covenant forever. Because God's promise to his church is forever and one day his bride when it's full will walk the aisle to Jesus and our love which is by faith now will be sight someday and think about this 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Your nature is new in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. 
the old is gone, behold, the new has come. And that new nature has been justified in Christ, adopted in Christ, and being sanctified in Christ into a holy love that you're included into that love of the Trinity. And that new nature, love is to be the fruit of this new nature in us individually and in us as a body. This is why Paul or why John says in verse 7, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God." This doesn't mean everyone who feels the affectionate worldly definition of love is born of God. This is talking about biblical love. Anyone who loves like that in a sacrificial way that gives glory to God, that sacrifices for the good of their neighbor. That's how we know the fruit of biblical love. And if Christ so loved us by laying his life down and giving to us immense blessings, let us also lay our lives down for one another. And so the, the, the fruit of our new nature is our very confession itself that we are to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and that, and that we know that all of history is going to a fixed point ultimately. Our new nature is confessed in that now, as Paul writes later in 1 John 4, that we no longer fear the judgment of God. Do you ever, like... Be, if you are terrified to stand before God and you have professed Christ, then you need to read the back half of John 4 because you no longer need to fear that day. Because you, just as you don't want your own children to be scared to come to your home, God does not want you to be scared to come into the new heavens and the new earth because you are his adopted child. And if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, hear the call to come home so that grace can be lavished upon you. And love is the fruit of our new nature in our posture of life. That we love righteousness, that we love our neighbor, and that we love Jesus with the same kind of love with which we were redeemed. And love is displayed through our actions. Just as God's love is a decision, loving in Christ is a decision. Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, which is read at countless weddings, and I'm convinced no one really pays attention to what it's saying. Go back and read. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not rude. It does not boast. Love never fails. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Turn to your husband and wife and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. You can deal with that later. But love is a decision. Love, love is obedience. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples as he's getting ready to go to the cross, he says, I think it's John 14, 31, everything I do, I do because I want the world to know that I love the Father. I'm laying my life down ultimately because I love the Father. This is why I hate the song above all, by the way. God did not, Jesus did not think of me above all on the cross. He thought about the love of his Father, most importantly. 
and his love for the Father in redeeming us. And in so keeping, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Obedience is not to be legalistic and dogmatic burdens. It's to be displays of love. I love Jesus, and so I want to obey him. I want to be a faithful husband because I love my wife. I don't look at the faithful commandments as a burden. Oh, i got to be faithful to Tara today. Oh, it's so hard. It's not really mom and dad. <laughs> it's not really. But you get the point, right? Love is displayed through the actions of our generosity to one another. This might step on, I know it steps on some toes in my own heart. But Christ, the Father, was so generous that he gave his only son. Think about that. I love you in this room, but I don't love you enough to sacrifice one of my children for you. And Jesus did come as the son. And the Father did send his son. And the son came and willingly gave up his life. And we, in our generosity, aren't to just give out of what's convenient for us. But biblical generosity is, I will give even if it hurts me for your benefit. Even if I go without food, I will feed you so that you're fed, and I will sacrifice for that. Let that weight sit. What would happen among us and in this community if that's the type of generosity that we gave to one another? Because real love is wedded to sacrifice. We love that for which we sacrifice for. I love what John Calvin says, and then I'm going to stop. It's kind of a long quote, but it's a great quote, and he's smarter than I am. John Calvin, in talking about how we are to love one another in Christ, says this. For we have to think of others not as they are in themselves, but as they are in God. We, when we cease to look on others in this way, we not surprisingly fall into many errors. When I just see people as people and I remove God from the equation, I'm going to fall into a lot of errors. Thus, if we would keep to the straight path of love, we must not fix our eyes on men, attention to whom we would most often make us I'm sorry, when we, uh, I think I've mistyped this. Thus, if we would keep to the straight path of love, we must not fix our eyes on men. We must fix our eyes on God, who commands us to extend our love for him to all men, so that we always have this foundation. Whatever a man may be like, we must nevertheless love him if we love God. That's biblical love. So God is love, and it's displayed through Christ. We are made new in Christ, and love is our new nature that is to be seen through our actions. And when we live like this, love displays that we actually belong to Jesus. John 13 34 and 35, Jesus says, the world will know you 
by your love for one another that is patterned after the love that is found in the Godhead. Go and release that to the world. Live that among each other and release that to the world. We do not want to be a church that values just truth, but truth should drive us to love in this manner for the glory of God. Will we be bold enough to do it? Knowing that this is the fruit that the Spirit is wanting to produce in us anyway. And this path is ultimately the path of life. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, and God, we are so thankful for the way that you have loved us, that you are such a generous God, that you have justified, adopted, and sanctified us in your Son, Jesus, and it is our desire to live this new nature collectively as a church body and to release that out into the world. Let the world know that we belong to you by how we love in keeping with how you have loved us. God, we love you, and it's our desire to worship you as a fragrant offering, as Ephesians 5.1 tells us, in keeping with the pattern of Christ, who gave himself up for us, making us alive and restoring us as your children. Help us to love like you, in Jesus' name, amen.